0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. This week we discuss the 16th major arcanum of the Tarot of Marseille, the Tower, also known as the Tower of Destruction, and the Maison Dieu. The image will be familiar to many Weird Studies listeners. A pillar of fire from heaven blows off the top of a tower and sends its inhabitants plummeting from its heights. The allusion to the Tower of Babel seems obvious. Genesis 11.4 And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Again, our main source for this discussion was the book Meditations on the Tarot, whose anonymous author ends his chapter on the card as follows. The 16th major arcanum of the Tarot is a warning addressed to all authors of systems, where an important role is assigned to a mechanical ingredient— intellectual, practical, occult, political, social, and other systems. It invites them to devote themselves to tasks of growth instead of those of construction, to tasks as cultivators and guardians of the garden instead of as builders of the Tower of Babel. If the all-too-human aspiration to build universal systems of knowledge and control is doomed from the start— it is because nature appears to contain an inextricable kernel of pure difference that precludes any attempt at total systematization. But as we'll see, it doesn't end there, as that oldest appellation of the card, la Maison Dieu, makes clear. In French, the term Maison Dieu, or more commonly, Hotel Dieu, God House, or God Hotel, refers to the church run hospitals and almshouses of the Middle Ages. To this day, there are hospitals in France, Canada, and elsewhere that are called hotel Dieu. On its face, then, the Marseille deck seems to be describing the tower as a hospital, and that enables us to reimagine the destructive thunderbolt as perhaps a form of shock therapy. As Phil points out in our conversation, citing Jodorowsky's study of the tarot, it is possible to read this arcanum as a symbol of liberation. And indeed, if the Tower of Babel with its universalist designs was always a kind of metaphysical prison, then it follows that its destruction and abandonment is the moment when its denizens and its builders will have found their freedom. Throughout this chapter, the author of Meditations on the Tarot draws a distinction between building towers and tending gardens. We interpret this as follows. Building a tower is an act born of suspicion, You build a tower to protect yourself from the environment, to wall nature off, to keep the forces of the cosmos out. Gardening, by contrast, requires an attitude of trust in the world. You plant the seed, you water it, and you wait, trusting that nature will finish the work. Perhaps that's what it comes down to in the end, a question of suspicion or trust. For 500 years now, we in the West have laboured under the spirit of suspicion. Does the 16th Arcanum call us to retrieve our trust in the world? A trust so profound that even the thunderbolts that lay waste to the towers we unconsciously build become validations of that trust? And what does cosmic trust imply exactly? Could it imply that the universe includes an ethical dimension, a dimension we've too hastily decided existed only in us? Hmm. Speaking of ethics, it occurs to me that if everyone listening to this episode found it in their heart to join the Weird Studies Patreon at the $1 per month tier, that's $12 a year, we could conceivably quit our day jobs and do this full time. Just thought I'd mention that. I also wanted to mention that the LPs of Pierre-Yves Martel's Weird Studies soundtrack have been pressed and are now shipping. You can purchase your vinyl on Pierre-Yves Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp to find it. Okay, on to the Tower of Destruction, or the God House. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today, today we're talking about the 16th Arcanum. We're continuing our series on the major arcana of the tarot. And today, our topic is the Tower of Destruction. Also known as just the Tower, or
1: yeah. in some older Marseille decks, la Maison Dieu. Yeah. The house, not the house of God. The God House. Yeah, the God House. Yeah. Which itself is one of those puzzling inconsistencies from the dim, unlighted history of the tarot, where we're like, was it because the printer was illiterate or semi literate Or is there a point to this strange anomaly? The tarot is just a tissue of things like that. Things that are either just random aberrations or the profoundest of secrets. Or both. You
0: never know which. Yeah. Well, the tower is one of the most kind of explicit, I guess, or most uh, didactic cards, you could say, in a way, because it shows you an event. Most of the cards don't aren't showing you an event, but rather a figure or a moment. But this one is showing you a tower that is being destroyed by a lightning bolt and people falling right. out of the tower. And, of course, the illusion that everyone assumes is made here is the Tower of Babel from the Old Testament, which uh, occurs toward the end of, I guess, the first movement in Genesis, which has to do with uh, the fall, right? So as the author of Meditations on the Tarot points out, the fall takes place in four stages. There's the eating of the fruit, which leads to exile from the garden. Then there's Cain's fratricide, Cain's killing his brother Abel which leads to Cain's wandering and founding of the founding of the first cities. And then there's the age of uh, of giants, where these mysterious aliens um, <laughs> come to Earth and mate with humans, and that leads to the flood. And then finally, after the flood, again, uh, humanity falls off the wagon and starts building this gigantic tower to reach heaven, and the tower is destroyed. And so for Tomberg, each of these stages is just basically working out the logic of the concept of the fall. And so the tower, in his mind, encapsulates all of Genesis, the whole idea of the fall. And um, mm-hmm. that's the biblical take. Uh, we could you know look at how Crowley looks uh, interprets the tower or other commentators, but I think there's general consensus that the tower, has to do with the failure of systematizing processes of attempts at capturing the totality in some kind of man-made artifact, whether it be a philosophical system or a, a civilization or whatever, that things of this world cannot contain things that are of the other world. And if they try to do that, then they will eventually come up against the real and, um, In this particular card, I guess the thunderbolt or the lightning bolt that destroys the tower is a symbol of reality, asserting itself as the limit, which makes it impossible to build a system that would endure um, in a universe of infinite possibility, something like that. So yeah, the failure of systems, system failure, communication breakdown. You know, though, you said that it's a generally accepted
1: like a a general consensus in the meaning of this card is as you just described it. I saw it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. but there's also another interpretation that comes out most strongly in Alejandro Hodorowsky's book on the Marseille Tarot, which admittedly is an eccentric book, but all books on the tarot are eccentric. He has a very different take, and I find that take, while less common is nevertheless a pretty strong tributary of the mainstream tarot interpretation. And I guess you could say that, you know, one thing about the tarot card is that the two competing interpretations or, or, or interpretive frameworks are actually 180 degrees opposed along a very simple spatial axis. Are we talking about something from without going within or something from within going out. Are we talking about something going up or something coming down? Now, the dominant interpretation would be it's something coming from the outside to level the tower. Like the thunderbolt of God is this force from outside the tower that takes the tower down to the ground. And then you see the two human figures that are upside down are clearly being ejected from the tower. They're falling. But there's also a way of thinking of the tower as the breakthrough, an explosion from within the tower and the liberation of pent-up forces. Mm. So if you just think about the Marseille card, there's this kind of blobby plume of smoke and fire or or ectoplasm or something that's emerging from the gap between the top of the tower, which is sort of canted and looks like it's being blown off, and the rest of the tower, right? And so the question is, what is that blobby thing? Now, as much as I love meditations on the tarot its author, Tonberg, does not always pay strictest attention to the details of the card. He does in some of his chapters, but not in this one. He doesn't spend a lot of time thinking, for example, like, why are there three windows? Yeah. You know, what are those little blobs descending from the skies? I've seen people...
0: Orbs. Orbs.
1: I saw somebody say that that looks a lot like the way illuminated manuscripts from the Middle Ages depicted manna falling from heaven. Yeah. I mean, almost invariably, this card is a curse. This is a card that nobody wants to see in a reading. But there's another way of looking at it and seeing it as a blessing, which that idea that those little orbs represent manna from heaven, and and that would tend to give us the idea that that weird blobby plume thing is something being liberated from the tower rather than representing the wrath of God visited upon the tower. Yeah. And Hodorowsky makes a big deal of this and he makes a big deal of that odd appellation, uh, la maison Dieu. And And he's like, this is the house of God, but it's also the God slash house. Yeah. It's the body or a sacred body. You could think of this, card by analogy with the breakthrough hexagram of the I Ching. It's an image of destruction, but it could be positive destruction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you can easily think of incidents in a human life that would combine both meanings. For example, the end of a long and fruitless relationship, like a bad relationship that, you know, you've broken up a million times, but somehow you always keep coming back together. But the basic problems of the relationship are never solved or resolved, you know, and you're just sort of stumbling from one breakup to another. There are a lot of people probably listening to my voice to whom that's happened. And the tower would be a figure of the ending of that relationship, the destruction of of something that you've spent perhaps years cultivating and building and that could certainly I, I think most people even in very unhappy relationships look at the end of that relationship with dread and so you could definitely feel like this is the tower of our relationship being reduced to rubble by by fate by contingency whatever You know, it's also in that very same situation in a human life, possible to see this as an image, not of violence done to
0: ourselves, but as the liberation of ourselves. I, I don't see how those two interpretations are opposed in any way. It seems like one inevitably follows from the other. Obviously, if you're stuck in a system that's not working, in a situation that's not working, And it's not working for internal and external factors, right? Uh, It's not working because, let's say, a relationship. It doesn't uh, serve your own process. It's not helping you become what you are or whatever. And same for the other party, probably. And then also there are external factors. And eventually the relationship implodes or explodes or both. And, of course, there's a destruction, but also destruction makes way for for the new right and for learning and for wisdom and so i think that i like jodorowsky's insistence on that side of it because yeah the card is often portrayed in too negative a light i think that it has all this potential is it and you know to tomberg's credit he does begin his chapter on the tower by saying that the tower represents the internal seed of evil in us as opposed to a blind force from outside coming in it's mm. that it's the breaking uh, good it's point. it's the divorce of the self and the true self as he puts it in esoteric terms that leads to the building of the tower it's the turning away from a vertical axis to a purely horizontal axis uh, that leads us to build this tower to kind of mimic the the vertical axis we've lost and in doing so we're dooming ourselves because the vertical axis is not something we can build and so when we build it it eventually gets destroyed by the thunderbolt but the thunderbolt is also what liberates and he goes at length into how the thunderbolt to those who humble themselves right, to those who are humble is actually the force of liberation and he talks about the thunderbolt as the purgatory by which we are divested of our illusions and kind of reconnected to the real and so I think that those two sides that destruction and also the destruction making way for new creation is kind of built into the process of the card it reminds me of like Thomas Kuhn's idea of paradigm shift right so you'll have a science it'll fossilize, it'll crystallize around a theory. And of course, then the external factors come in and start to challenge the theory. And of course, the reason it crystallized in the first place is because of an internal disposition on our part to assume that this theory is the final truth, right? And so it crystallizes in our minds and then more and more pressure is placed upon the structure from outside by, you know, new discoveries or new problems that are encountered along the way. And eventually the paradigm collapses and is destroyed mm-hmm. and then it has to be replaced with a new paradigm or automatically a new paradigm comes in. And so, yeah, it's, it's – I've, I've never – I don't like seeing this card as a purely negative thing. Just like I, I don't like thinking of the idea of the judgment of God as a negative thing. You know, he has a really nice line, Tomberg, in in the meditations on the tarot, where he says that uh, the soul judges itself in purgatory. It's just basically your limited ideas measuring up against the infinite real, and obviously your limited ideas are going to be proven false in light of an infinite reality. But that doesn't mean that you're doomed. It means that you're being uh, humbled, you're being um, challenged, you're being brought into a new state of becoming.
1: Let's talk about the basic structuring metaphor that Tonberg, basic metaphor that he's working with here, which is the garden and the tower. Oh, yeah. That's good. Gardening versus building as the fundamental yeah. activity of the hermeticist and the truth seeker in the spiritual realm.
0: Oh, yeah. Right, well, so- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he he has this brilliant, brilliant interpretation of the story of the Garden of Eden, so the first part of Genesis, or the second part, I guess. He points out how interesting it is that the Old Testament places us in a garden at the beginning, as opposed to, he comes up with three other possibilities, as opposed to a jungle, a desert, or a town, a city. And he says that the garden is the perfect, perfect analogy for a proper engagement with reality, because a garden is neither a jungle, which is a basically a, a blind proliferation of nature, nor a city, which is a place where only the spirit rules and nature can't find any purchase. Nor in other is words, it like human human intention and will. Yeah, exactly. Words. Spirit when you and say spirit mind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nor is it uh, a desert, which is a kind of divorce of the spirit and nature, where neither is engaging. It's just purely passive state where each are completely separated. But a garden where things are kind of in balance, and. Adam and Eve are tasked with tending this garden. So cultivating it and keeping the garden. So in other words, they interact with it, they engage with it, but then they wait and they watch it grow, right? A gardener is working with nature constantly to try, you know, you have to adapt to it. You have to, you can't kind of impose your will on things. And so he says that, you know, the fall from Eden was the fall from this spirit of gardening into into the desert, first of all, because they're cast out into a desert. But then, of course, the next thing that happens is that Cain goes off and starts building cities. So the desert and the city follow from the fall from the garden. Hmm. Um, and so he's constantly opposing in this chapter the tower, which is the human attempt to create a vertical axis on its own terms, and the tree, which is the vertical axis as given by reality, which cannot be built but must be gardened, you know, tended to. And
1: he has a good line towards the end of this chapter, which I'm going to try and find. So, throughout this chapter, Tonberg is really working through the same distinction between the garden and the tower, between cultivation and building. But he's using a number of different metaphors or, or figures to define the difference that he's after. Uh, one is the idea of um, surgery as representing the spirit of building or specialization yeah, or mechanism. You know, in some ways, his critique of the arrogance of human beings trying to... Now that I'm thinking of it, it is exactly what Arthur Macken meant by sin in the white people.
0: All right. The yeah. taking
1: of heaven by storm, of taking what is not given, of using human contrivances, the contrivances of our mind to get what is not otherwise obtainable or at least otherwise obtained. And so mechanism, techni also comes into this. This is on page 452. I have said that in practical hermeticism, there is nothing mechanical or surgical. This means to say that one will not find any kind of device within it, mental, ceremonial, or physiological, by means of which one would be able to know and accomplish things surpassing the capacity of the moral and intellectual faculties that one possesses by virtue of moral and intellectual growth due to experience, endeavor, and the action of grace from above. You will not find, for example, a technical method of awakening the lotus centers, by means of the pronunciation of mantric syllables accompanied by breathing specially adapted to this end. The lotus centers grow and mature in the light, warmth, and life of the true, the beautiful, and the good, without any special technical method being applied. The lotuses, just like the whole human being, develop according to the general law. And this is a quote from, Book of Mark, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed upon the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should sprout and grow he knows not how. And that line from Mark really does kind of set a bow on the distinction that he's trying to make throughout this chapter. The idea that the part of man to play, or human beings, is the scattering of the seed. Yet the seed. Put it in your hand, find a likely patch of ground, and sprinkle them shits, right? (laughs) But the actual growing, that's not his concern, this hypothetical man mentioned in the Bible. He wakes up one day and some of the seeds have sprouted. Why these seeds rather than those seeds? Who knows? How did they sprout anyway? Well, you know, science, which is, of course, the methodical application of the spirit of of technique, would eventually come to answer those questions. So now we do know how the seeds grow, and we do have pretty good ideas why these seeds would germinate rather than those seeds, right? I would like to point out that what Tonberg is assuming in his garden metaphor is that human beings can't actually themselves do the growing for the plants, which is quite true. Yeah. I sort of feel the need to say that when we're talking about gardening maybe we should specify organic gardening because right. you know if you're going to throw a bunch of miracle grow <laughs> on your tomatoes that yeah. is also the spirit of building the spirit well, of the tower they're trying few, to
0: yeah arrogate growth to your own plans and techniques right well if you look at Monsanto and their patented fertilizers that can grow anything anywhere and, and you have a perfect example of a Tower of Babel right there and how it, it ends right. up desiccating the land and, and yeah exactly
1: yeah it turns the land into a desert which is the <laughs> replicating the fall yeah
0: what, what he's saying is that we, yeah, the secret of how things grow of why things grow is not something we can have access to It's like in biology, when they try to find, they were trying to find the life principle. How does inorganic matter become organic? How do life forms develop out of uh, non-living material? Well, it's, it's mysterious. It's, um, it's mysterious. And science can say, well, there's no mystery because there's nothing there. There's no categorical difference or qualitative difference between a living thing and a non-living thing, which is on, in one sense, obviously true. Since we're all made of the same stuff, but in another sense, kind of absurd, because obviously there's a huge difference between a living thing and a non-living thing. It's, you remember at the very beginning of our correspondence, you and I kept talking about co-creation as a kind Mm. of, as the proper mode of engagement with reality. And that's kind of what he's getting at, is that gardening Mm. involves co-creation. You have a partner when you're gardening. Yes. Um, It's like traditional poetry, rhyming. Rhyming is a co-creation between the poet and the language. There's no particular mm. reason why, you know, this word rhymes with that word. And in committing to writing a poem that rhymes, you are seriously limiting your your freedom of expression with the language. And yet somehow, mm-hmm. somehow, by making that move, you end up with some of the great works of poetry. It's magic, Language will provide you with affordances, meanings that you could not have imagined on your own because you've decided to let language have a say in your poetry. It's not you dominating language and deciding what it means, but working with it to tease out symbolic correspondences say, between poor, door, and uh I don't know, gore, uh, that you wouldn't have obtained normally. You're finding connections that are in the language somehow, virtually. And I think that's the idea he's getting at with gardening, is that uh, the world is bigger than what we can imagine it is, and there are mysteries in the deepest recesses of it. But these mysteries, these mysterious forces are amenable to cooperation and somehow will generate something of value if we only engage with them in that spirit of co-creation. I love what you just said about rhymes.
1: That's absolutely right. And it becomes a general principle of art, not just of writing verse. Yeah. No, it's in, it's everywhere. I mean, one of the things that... It's a classic problem of modernism and and modernist criticism. It's like, do you need traditional structures like writing in a sonnet form or writing in a sonata form if we're talking about instrumental music of the 18th and 19th century? To put it uncharitably, these are kind of like cake mix formulas, right? Sonata form, have a vigorous theme in the home key, the tonic, and then have a transition where you modulate to the dominant key, the second most attractive key in the tonal framework. And then you're going to do a more lyrical theme there. And then you're going to put those themes together. There's going to be a second section where they get all mashed up together. And then there's a third section and final section, the third act where they're reconciled and blah, blah, blah. And you could look at that and say, oh, this is very prescriptive. The dead hand of tradition. And modernists, of course, rebelled against these and pretty much every other limitation Placed on their creativity by tradition and by hallowed forms and established precedents. But it's often been pointed out, rightly, that working within limitations is actually far easier than working without limitations. And, you know, the composer Arnold Schoenberg was the composer who most notably started writing music without any sense of a home key at all. It's called atonal music, yeah. non tonal music. And he eventually created a system of composing with 12-note rows, which I'm not going to explain, which allowed him to compose with reasonable fluency because he was creating a system. But before he came up with that system for about a decade, he was just trying to write just completely free music with no tonal center. And what would happen was that he wrote very short pieces of extremely intense and compressed expression. But... Sometimes if he so much as like got up to get a sandwich, he would step outside of the hot flow of inspiration and intuition. And when he would pick up the pen again, he would find that he had no longer had the plot. He couldn't finish the piece. Right. So you have a bunch of short pieces and a bunch of uncompleted pieces from those years. And it's a graphic demonstration of how fucking hard it is to choose to walk away from – A formal constraint like it's got a rhyme, for example, and not have some kind of countervailing or counterbalancing formal structure to rein it in. And the reason it's easy is you just expressed it so beautifully or not easy but easier is because when you are working within given formal rules – there's player two, it becomes a two player game. It's you and these limitations and you're playing with them, you're co-creating. And for example, in writing a a hip hop lyric, which is a fun thing to try. I don't have any conspicuous talent at it, but it's fun to do. You know, sometimes you'll be puzzling out, okay, what rhymes with that word and blah, blah, blah. And by having to Figure your way through a rhyme scheme. You might end up at the last line, and suddenly, what pops into your head, unbidden, is the coolest fucking line ever that you could never have come up with such a perfect capping phrase, were it not for the fact that you were already living within the restricted world of sounds that resonate against one another. And this, I think, is a general aesthetic principle.
0: It's so interesting because I think those two, uh, let's say, those two modes—the the kind of free mode, the Schoenberg kind of eschewing all traditional structures and the old structures, the sonnet or the sonata reflect two attitudes towards reality, which are both, I think, warranted the older structures events, a kind of attitude of trust, because a lot of these forms were modeled on forms in nature, right? Like, um, people have written about how the haiku is modeled on upon uh, the way that the natural events kind of unfold. And, uh, I think you could say that the sonata, the tension and release in a sonata, the the kind of form of it is something that we observe in nature all the time. Nature is always a question of tension and release. And so these forms aren't just purely arbitrary, artificial formulas that somebody came up with and imposed on everyone else for no reason. Um, They evolved, you know, and they evolved in a spirit, I think, of trust in the world. Now, we have reasons to trust the world, but we, we also have reasons to hold the world suspect because the world is a dark, dangerous place. And I think that a lot of the modern, like, like free verse poetry or a lot of the, um, you know, atonal music or um, some forms of abstract art are coming out of a, a spirit of suspicion towards the world that there's something more to this world that we can only get by eschewing these traditional structures. There's something more, and I think there's value in that too. The strange thing is that, in choosing to rhyme, let's say, in hip hop or poetry, you are seriously limiting your options as to what you could say next, like seriously limiting your option. You're not just limiting the last word of the line, because the last word of the line has to make sense in the line. So you're actually limiting all the words in the next line. And uh, you're going from an almost infinite number of choices to a very set. You can look at a rhyming dictionary. You can actually see <laughs> what your choices are. And yet somehow the poetry generated can still be beautiful and meaningful. It's just kind of a miracle that rhyming works at all or that um, sonatas work at all. Again, it's, I think, encouraging us to retrieve some of that trust that we've lost in reality, that, that meaning isn't just locked in our heads, that meaning is waiting out there for us to find it. And um, right. so it's strange because we've been praising systems, and this, the tower seems to be cautioning us against systems. Anti system. But there are systems that are, yeah, there are systems that are open onto the world, right? A garden is a system. Yeah, but it, that's it very lets true. the world in, as opposed to a system that's closed and kind of um, taking an antagonistic stance towards the world.
1: The emphasis you're placing on trust is, I think, absolutely key here. Trust, or we might use the word faith. What we're trying to do here is to make a distinction between gardening and building. It would be too facile to say that if you're composing in sonnets or sonata form, or rhyming verse as opposed to blank verse, that you are doing the work of gardening and walking away from these systems is somehow doing the work of building. That would be, I think, entirely too schematic. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, there are any number of composers. We don't play their music. We don't care about them because they did approach the sonata form as a cake mix formula. Correct. They, they did use this as a means of attaining that which is not theirs to begin with, just as that passage that I quoted from Tonberg a moment ago would suggest, you know, like he's saying... What we object to is the use of technique to gain that which is not organically developed, grown. Right. Um, And that figure of trust or faith is important because—and this is not something Tonberg says, but I'm saying it. I'm I'm not sure if I'm right about this, but that building is almost a neurotic act. When I say building, I'm not talking about like just I built a shed, therefore I'm neurotic, nothing like that. But like this abstract thing, this distinction that Tonberg is making between gardening and building. What is building? What's the distinction? Building is when you don't trust player two. You know, player two, whether it's the form in which you are being creative, that you're playing with the limits of that form, or whether player two is God. I'm not making an equivalency between them but either way in the gardening thing you're giving up some of your you're giving up some of your control and letting things happen not rather than making them so you know in gardening and I'm not talking about Monsanto type <laughs> agriculture you know <laughs> agribusiness I'm talking about gardening you are establishing conditions within which things can grow well you're making sure that the soil is properly amended and that you're planting plants in an appropriate part of your yard where they get enough shade, but maybe not too much, blah, blah, blah. But once you've done the setting up, those are the limits you're playing with. And you're you're playing with them. You're co-creating them. And- and putting stuff in the ground and waiting for it to come up, you're trying to give it every opportunity of success. You're pulling weeds so it doesn't have competition. You're making sure it's properly watered if you've been suffering through a spell of dry weather. But you're not making the plants push themselves up. You're trusting that that's going to happen. Right. And sometimes it doesn't. Like when you garden, a lot of plants just – they don't make it. And you have to be able to say, oh, well – I'm going to dig them out and I'm going to put something else there. Yeah. And that whole process is marked by trust. You're going to let things happen. You're going to trust that your patience and your trust will be rewarded. Whereas building, you are taking every single causal link of the process of how you get from A to Z, how you get from no building to a fully realized building. You are subjecting every causal link of that to your control. That's what building is. And it's neurotic because you do that because you don't trust yeah. that any of those links are going to happen without your will and
0: intent. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's, it's in the story of Cain, right? With that, with, which Tomberg insists is part of the, the this arcanum. It's that Cain doesn't trust reality. Reality rewards his brother and doesn't reward him because he doesn't trust it. The way things are is not the way things should be to Cain. Things should be different. He should be rewarded for being what it is. And so his penance, his sentence is to wander. And Tomberg brilliantly says that he basically enters the horizontal axis. He loses the vertical. And so he's a a wanderer on the earth. He wanders horizontally on the earth. And what does he do? But he founds the first cities, right? He's the founder of cities. And cities are uh, structures of suspicion. You build a city to protect yourself against the forces of nature. Yes. You know, there's power in numbers, there's a wall, there's, you know, everything you you want to push out, nature. Now, what's interesting is that in, the, in Revelation, when the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem appears at the end of the book of Revelation, it is a city built around a garden. And so it is a city that has achieved mm. the kind of squaring the circle move of bringing... Spirit and nature in perfect kind of harmony. That's the idea. But the road to that is kind of uh, really horrific. (laughs) And so that's the challenge is how do we co-create? How do we co-create? How do we work with nature? And it begins, as you say, with trust. We have to begin with trusting that the world will provide that that somehow that the seeds we plant will grow and that they will grow into something that we'll be happy to have around and not 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 necessarily grow into like, I don't know Cthulhu monsters or the fungi from Yugoth or whatever. <laughs> um, spirit of trust, yeah.
1: glad that you brought up the New Jerusalem of Revelations, not pretending that I've read Revelations, because I haven't. Nevertheless, that figure of the, the reconciliation of the garden and the city, of growing and building, that's very important in Tonberg's way of thinking too, because he insists that you know the heart of Hermeticism, he says, is alchemy. The transmutation of the lower into the higher rather than the surgical move of trying to sever the right. higher from the lower. Right. And he insists that the cross, the Christian cross is the fundamental symbol of the right way to do it, the way of harmony, you know, the way of gardening. Because you have two opposed forces, the garden and the city, for example, Science and religion, Republicans and Democrats, like any difficult to reconcile opposition you care to, to name. And he's like, the figure of the cross shows these two things crossed, but integrally together and necessary to form the figure of the cross. You're not trying to say, oh, the upright of the cross has to beat the... Yeah, horizontal beam. Yeah. The horizontal part of the cross. You're not saying that one part has to win. And he has this wonderful line. I want to read this. I have to find it first. Um, Oh, I found it right away. God must want me to read this passage. (laughs) He's like, the two poles of the human being live in the presence of one another. You know, the higher self and the lower self. The result of which is an alchemical process of gradual approach to one another. And he starts from this idea of gradual approach. What is left when we are not... Looking for supremacy or victory, but harmony. He thinks of all kinds of different examples of wars between Protestants and Catholics. He talks about the 38th parallel of the Korean War, which was relatively recent when this book was written, Uh, Muslims and Christians. And he writes the 38th parallel in Korea was the beginning of it. The result will be the operation of the magic of the cross, the alchemical process of transmutation. The free world being in the presence of its judge and untiring competitor will gradually eliminate what it recognizes as social injustices. And the communist world being in the presence of its judge and untiring competitor will gradually liberalize itself and restore the freedoms that it recognizes postulates of human nature, which one cannot and must not violate. And of course, we're reading this now and we're like, well, I know how that story actually ended and it didn't quite go the well, way it's
0: not quite over yet, you thought of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's not quite over yet, yeah. true. But he And he says, the magic of the cross, alchemy operating in the marriage of opposites, is therefore the sole hope of the world for mankind and for its history. And it is precisely this principle of the marriage of opposites which underlies hermeticism. This is why it rejects the principle of divorce and war, the surgical principle, in practice as well as in theory, spiritually, morally, and intellectually. The soul of Hermeticism is that, quote, nothing should be lost. All should have eternal life, which is a quote from the book of John. But somewhere here, there's still some particular sentence you write. So I want, want to read. So hold sure. on. Go for it. Whether we like it or not, we will have to mutually recognize one another and to tolerate the existence of one another and to bear the suffering entailed thereby. That... It's a pretty important goddamn line. Yeah. It's a very wise line, and it also is very, very difficult. Uh, dear listener, think of whoever it is you hate most in life. Go on, do it. <laughs> think of who you really fucking hate. I can tell you who I really fucking hate. Donald motherfucking Trump. I lie awake at night just hating that guy. Just oh, unappeasable loathing. And I know it's not good for me. I know it's not good, when I do it anyway. But all my hatred is not going to make him disappear in a puff of smoke, nor is it going to do one iota to change the political situation in this country of people yelling at one another but never actually listening to or talking to one another. And even if it did have some temporary effect. Like I could win this argument. I could win this fight. You know, tomorrow I will lose the next fight. And my enemy will still be there. That motherfucker will still be staring at me from the pages of the newspaper or across the boardroom meeting conference table or whatever the fuck, whoever the person you cannot fucking abide, whose very existence seems to be an affront to the order of existence as you have come to know it, that motherfucker will still be there tomorrow. And now what? You got to deal with that. Tonberg talks about the 30 years war, In the early 17th century that basically emptied out Germany of people. And what was the consequence of it? Well, Germany continued to be Protestant and the Catholic parts of Europe continued to be Catholic. And they're still there. They're still staring one another in the eye. Sooner or later, they've got to figure out how to look one another in the eye and actually start talking to one another. And he has this great line where he's like, that's what it means to carry the cross. Mm Mm-hmm. That's carrying the cross. And I really love that. It's a moral image or a moral vision pitched considerably higher than where I am in my life. Not an especially good person. But I like reading the writings of good people. (laughs) It makes me feel like there's something possible to attain. And yet the challenge is how do you attain it? That really is... The core question that Tomberg is wrestling with and, and what he wants us to think about in relation to the tower card.
0: There have always been divisions in society, of course. You can make an argument that the divisions that we're experiencing today are of a qualitative, different nature, from at least from the ones we experienced in the last epoch, the one that ended, let's say, in 1994, or whatever, when the internet went online. And as we've discussed on this show, uh, Gilles Deleuze wrote in 1990 a kind of prophecy called Postscript on the Societies of Control. And um, I think it's safe to say by now that he was right, like ridiculously right about the direction we were heading in. Uh, It wasn't all that obvious in 1990. He gets as specific as saying that the sport of the age of control will be surfing. (laughs) You know, this is four years before the World Wide Web appears. Hmm. And in this piece, which is very short and recommended reading, he explains how, for instance, the old disciplinary societies, which Foucault diagnosed and described in his work, were being replaced. Uh, So disciplinary societies were predicated on analog technology. This new society would be digital technology. Whereas the old society was predicated on the formation of molds in which individuals would be poured like concrete, according to types, workers, uh, bourgeois, you know, uh, capitalists. The new uh, society would be based in modulation. Mm -hmm. Watchwords would become passwords. Surveillance and punishment would give way to tracking and rehabilitation. And this is the key thing, cooperation within factions would give way to universal competition to the degree that each individual in a society of control is divided within themselves. So you have things like self-improvement, permanent education, all these things that inject a spirit of rivalry within the self. For example, the discrepancy between your wetware self and your Facebook self, Mm. the way he prophesied it was the individual will become individual. He writes, for example, quote, the corporation constantly presents the brashest rivalry as a healthy form of emulation, an excellent motivational force that opposes individuals against one another and runs through each individual dividing each within. And I think that what we're seeing today, This kind of siloing and this uh, divisiveness and this communication breakdown between what still appear to be factions is actually a function of this internal division, which the society that has, I think, incontestably risen uh, in the last 20 years, even though we don't know it because it's still selling us the image that we live in the old kind of society... Yeah, the the divisions we're seeing in society between what seem to be factions are actually a function of an internal division that is created by the societies of control. Hmm. So again, we go back to that, is it coming from outside or inside? It's like both, right? I think that there's something about the way that the atomization, uh, Charles Taylor wrote about atomization, the dangers thereof, right? The atomization that is part and parcel of the digital revolution the way each of us is kind of reduced to a unit flowing through masses of units is itself the reason why you have such breakdown between factions at a higher macrocosmic level. So that- That's fascinating. You're actually battling yourself. Like when you're being a conservative online, your first and most important war is the war against the liberal in you. Mm, I love that. And the negation of parts of you. And that's why I think Jung has become the thinker for the 21st century, because Jung's entire project was about marriage of opposites and how we, mm-hmm. we come to terms with that within ourselves and how changes in the macrocosm can only come as a result of changes in the microcosm. And so that's, that's terrific. I'm, I'm just following up on what you were saying. You were saying that we have to learn to tolerate one another, but we seem to be living in a social system that is entirely based on the Injection or the imposition of divorce at every level of society yes. at every level of the self. Everything is divorced from its opposite. And it seems like reconciliation is precisely what has become impossible. Mm-hmm. Divide and conquer, right? It's the oldest maxim. You divide the self and you conquer. A society of control controls by virtue of its divisive surgical work. I'm reminded now mm-hmm. of that great song by Wilco which is kind of a prof- from a prophetic album that they did called the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in 2001. And there's one line that says that, you know, my mind is filled with radio cures, electronic surgical words, you know. And this is still early, early days for him to be writing that. But I think he was sensing the coming of a time where words, signs would have a kind of surgical function in us. We'd all be like the anesthetized patient on the table, you know, in T.S. Eliot, being kind of cut into pieces by these the semiotic system that we're all embedded in. And so the question is, how do we get out of that? Uh, How do we find ways of tolerating Trump and all of his manifestations in a world that seems entirely based in this idea of division, internal and external division? Yeah, I don't know the answer because Trump
1: is, among other things, the personification of what you're talking about. Right. This divorce at every level
0: of the <laughs> yeah, human. Exactly. Literally and figuratively.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I confess, I have no answer to that. You know, what you're saying is really interesting to me. And it actually runs parallel to some thoughts I had recently about celebrity. So I'm teaching a class called American Song on Film, which is mostly film musicals, which, little known fact, I really love film musicals. One of the things that we're talking about in this class is celebrity, because understanding how star persona work, for example, how Fred Astaire's star persona works, and how star personas are used in the genre of film, how star personas determine the kind of play that we as fans engage in with these films, right? It's a fairly important question. And there's a great little book by Richard Dyer, a British Marxist critic who thought carefully about entertainment and musical films. It's called Heavenly Bodies. It's about star images. I assigned the introduction of that book to my class And what he does, he kicks off the photograph of Joan Crawford. It's a photograph that Eve Arnold did of Crawford preparing to go down stage. And so she's putting on makeup and putting on her finery and looking at the mirror. And she's holding a makeup mirror, but she's also sitting in front of a full-length mirror. So I'm just going to read what Dyer says. Crawford is before two mirrors, a large one on the wall, the other a small one in her hand. In the former, we see the Crawford image at its most finished. She is reduced to a set of defining features, strong jaw, the gash of mouth, the heavy arched eyebrows, the large eyes. From just such a few features, an impressionist, caricaturist, or female impersonator can summon up Joan Crawford for us. Meanwhile, in the small mirror, we can see the texture of the powder over foundation, the gloss of the lipstick, the penciling of the eyebrows, we can see something of the means by which the larger image has been manufactured. Neatly, we have two Crawford reflections. The placing of the smaller one, central, and in sharpest focus might suggest that this is the one to be taken as the real Crawford. However, Dyer goes to point out that there's a third Crawford in the photograph, and here I'm resuming my reading, a back view slightly less sharply in focus than the mirror images. So the photographer, Eve Arnold, is taking a picture of a woman looking at herself in two mirrors, and we see the two mirror reflections, but we also see the back and shoulder of the person who's holding the mirror, right? The fact that the different mirrors throw back different pictures suggests the complex relationship between a picture and that of which it is a picture, something reinforced by the fact that both mirrors reflect presentation, but... What about this third shadowy figure, the shoulder of the woman holding the mirror that this photographer has caught? Is the third Crawford the real one, the real person who was the occasion of the images? This back view of Crawford establishes her as very much there, yet she is beyond our grasp except through the partial mirror images of her. It's perhaps the smaller mirror image, the true reflection of what the actual person of Crawford was really like, or can we know only that there was a real person inside the images, but never really know her, which is Joan Crawford really? Okay, so I've done this sort of setup, and this is the payoff. This is what stardom is in Dyer's view, and also I completely agree with him, so I guess it's my view as well. Dyer writes we can carry on looking at the Arnold photo like this and our mind can constantly shift between the three aspects of Crawford but it is the three of them taken together that make up the phenomenon Joan Crawford and it is the insistent question of really that draws us in keeping us on the go from one aspect to another so in other words what celebrity is is kind of a game that we play with celebrity images. The celebrity manufactures or has manufactured for her a whole constellation of different images analogized by the multiple mirrors in this Eve Arnold photograph. What celebrity is, is our engagement with those multiple images, our eyes moving constantly from one to another, always impelled by the question, who is The real Joan Crawford. Right, right. Who is she really? And celebrity runs on that engine. And it gets very sophisticated. And recently we were talking about the 1954 film A Star is Born with Judy Garland, which manages the remarkable, almost alchemical feat of taking all of – The seamy insider gossip about Judy Garland, her troubles with alcohol and pills and, and weight and showing up for things on time and her multiple suicide attempts, all these things that escaped the MGM image making machinery, then become part of her star image. And the film, The Star is Born, in fact, then redeploys all of that stuff. Like here, we're showing you the seamy stuff behind the scenes, but that just becomes another star image, another other artifice, right? Okay, so my thought is that this is a condition that pertains to celebrities, and at the time that A Star is Born was filmed, the celebrities are, you know, James Mason and Judy Garland, the people in the film, but, you know, one of the truest things anybody ever said was Andy Warhol saying, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes, That's a way of saying everybody is in a very small way, a celebrity, very tiny way, maybe not in the sense of being known by millions and millions of people, but in the sense that now because of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, et cetera, we are all our own publicists creating a curated version of our life. We are the ones creating the star images and friendship or familial relations. Have been degraded to the celebrity game of following the images of our eyes going from one image to another, asking, Who is the real j yeah. f. Martel right 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 Now, thing is that this is a prescription for bad mental health. This will make you crazy. And you know the fact that celebrities tend to be somewhat insane, at least so it would appear. Sort of bears out It's like it's just not good for you to live your life this way because then if who you are, it's like a bunch of images, like a deck of cards that you keep shuffling and drawing from. Well, who's the real me? Yeah. Is there a real me? The same kind of vertigo we get, like looking at like Judy Garland and asking like, is there even a real person there? to get to or is she just like an empty shell made up of these flickering images that becomes a question that we ask ourselves like something that has always puzzled me is the great popular success of Judith Butler's idea of the performative self of course Judith Butler didn't invent this concept but you know that idea that in very ordinary things like going to a restaurant with your friends you're playing a certain role now Butler and other critical theorists of that generation were promulgating this idea because they hated the idea of a centered self and they wanted to explode that idea. However, the popular appropriation of Butler's ideas or ideas similar to to Butler's The idea of cultural construction has undergone an interesting mutation where people, on the one hand, insist on the constructedness of social behavior and yet will fight tenaciously to the death for whatever their presumed identity is. Yeah, because... People will say, speaking as an X or speaking as a Y, there's some identity that you affirm as your identity that you have by virtue of your participation in a group, and you insist on the absolute, literal, immovable truth of that. That's where, like, it seems almost all of the online arguments come from when people we get up each other's nose by seeming to criticize that type of which I believe I am a token. And somehow, therefore, that idea of social construction undergoes a kind of enantiadromia where the basic project of undermining all such ideas of fixed identity turns into a project of reinforcing and defending those identities. You simultaneously aver the constructedness of identity and you fight to the death to maintain what you just said is a fiction. That schizophrenia seems to me to be entirely an artifact of a social circumstance where everybody is a celebrity in their own life and
0: everybody is their own publicist. Because as Dwyer says, the really, the game only starts when the really comes in. Which one is the right. real? So the, the idea of the real is constantly haunting this kind of world of phantasms that we've created. I you know another prophetic utterance of the last, you know, 75 years or whatever is Guy Debord in Societies of the Spectacle. He said that under commodity capitalism, we have moved from an ethos of being to an ethos of having, and that now we were slowly sliding into an ethos of appearing. And, um, mm. and that seems to have borne out. So the question is and again this connects with things we've said before about how our spectral age looks a lot like uh, the phantasmic world of of myth right of the underworld or the world of dreams whereas you can imagine i guess fairly easily how the life of a peasant in you know late medieval europe would be pretty much kind of a a world of flows and continuities. For the most part, our life is characterized by breakages and discontinuities, shifting from one, even shifting from one window to another on your computer screen. Uh, It always involves these kind of rifts. And the preeminence of the image of appearance over being is obviously the case today. Like that's what's going on. Just trying to bring that back to our theme, the Arcanum of the Tower, could it be that this society of control, rooted and promulgated or propagated through this kind of ethos of appearing, could it be that this is the most sophisticated attempt on the part of human beings to create a tower, to build a tower? Yes. Yeah. That
1: is exactly where I was going. You are the tower. That's the thing. Each one of us is the tower. The only problem with Tonberg's argument is that sometimes it can lead you into thinking that it's very abstraction and generality, it means that we're just talking about, like, you know, society, man. Yeah. Uh, or what Jacques Ellul is talking about when he talks about technique in uh, what is that book that the Unabomber read and was influenced by Technological Society yeah so the Technological Society you know like you could think that that's all we're talking about but no actually it's real damn personal it's you are the tower I am the tower yeah and that shit has to fall
0: again we see how the tarot is rarely giving us fodder or reasons or tools for judging other people it's about us and so the what the arcanum of the tower has to do with each one of us what are the towers we've erected within ourselves how do we conceive of ourselves as a tower and um, what are the limitations of that? You know, the genius of the society of control that we obviously live under. And again, I, I just want to stress that the only reason why people are still reading deleuze's piece as though he were talking about something that's still to come is that the society of control, I would say, uh, includes within it, since it is so much rooted in appearance, appearances and images, this is something that De doesn't get into is invested deeply invested in portraying itself as anything, but a society of control. Right. And we see this all the time. Like social media was sold to us like as this space of freedom, free communication, you know, it's worth pointing out too. the, um, a babble like breakdown of communication that has occurred as a function of communication tools that were intended to create the kind of 90s utopic transparency everybody was talking about. Everybody was talking about in the future, everyone will be communicating. Communication will happen in the moment, in real time, immediately, transparently across, like rhizomatically across the uh, social body. And that has indeed happened, but it hasn't, we haven't obtained the desired result what's realized in the end, what has materialized is a society where nobody can talk to anybody. It seems the parallels between Mm. our society and the tower of Babel are actually pretty staggering. And now I'm still at the macro level, but ultimately this is the thing. A game needs buy-in and somehow people have bought into this And maybe, you know, Jung wrote a book towards the end called The Undiscovered Self, a short little book where he kind of distilled some of his teachings or whatever into an adjustable form that anybody could read. And one thing he says in there is that society cannot change. You can't change society from the top down. All that can happen is that individuals change. It's the buy-in. Somehow we, and this is the thing that this, I guess, is what prompts Heidegger to say only a God can save us. The only way the world can change is if everybody tears down the towers within themselves. Yeah. And that seems as likely to happen as, you know, the pigs fly or that hell freezes (laughs) over it's not going to happen and so you know it's what again brings me back to a kind of like religious thinking that like maybe some some event something i was really hoping that the the ufo report to congress would have you know gotten the ball rolling there but it's clearly has not Uh, that some some encounter some event will um wake us out of our torpor and tear down those towers or at least encourage us to dismantle them, because as it is now, we're all active participants. This is something from I wrote in Reclaiming Art. We've all become active participants in our own enchantment, our own ensorcellment, like entrancement. I think was the word I used. It's like it's not like before, where you had the TV and the radio entrancing people, or the dictator and the loudspeaker entrancing people. We're all actively participating in it now through these systems that have been built by these these despicable nerds. Um, And so we are all caught up in this web and it's almost unimaginable how we could extricate ourselves from this situation. It seems like we need some kind of event. I don't know if that's how you feel, but it's, uh, it's very. I feel like I kind of agree, but at the
1: same time that also sounds like the council of despair. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're stuck here. It's too big. What can I do? I'm just one man. And, you know, one thing that I believe is that each of us can do what one man or one woman, one person can do. Maybe it's facile to say it, but like that could be cultivating your garden. That's the last fucking thing anybody ever wants to do. I think about like meditation. You know, great practice of cultivating your garden, although meditation also is riven by the same schism between gardening and building, between letting grow and making happen that Tonberg is uh, on about. But, you know, in a very practical society such as ours, somebody sitting quietly staring at a wall for half an hour, 40 minutes, 50 minutes doesn't look like they're doing jack shit. Uh, You sort of say, well, you're staring at your navel, and I'm sure that's a very edifying sight. I'm sure you enjoy it. But what are you doing to help anybody? Whose mouths are you feeding? You know, are you putting a roof over anyone's head? Are you stopping the march of fascism in this country? No, you're just sitting. And one of the standard rebuttals to that very standard complaint And it's not just about meditation. It's any kind of spiritual practice, any kind of spiritual activity.
0: Or artistic practice, for that matter.
1: Or artistic practice, for that matter, yeah. A standard kind of response would be, it's sort of like the, you know, what it says in airplanes, adjust your own mask before helping others kind of thing, Mm -hmm. or to put it in maybe slightly more highfalutin terms, like you are nourishing the ground of your being, that your life is a garden and you are cultivating that garden, but in so doing, you are making The world greener. You are adding your little scintilla of greenness to the desertified regions of the soul that we seem to have found ourselves in. You're not just nourishing your own grounds, but because we're all interconnected, you are also caring for other people in your community. I can tell you, certainly in my own life, that I have become much more useful for other people as a result of that kind of cultivating my own garden, like making sure that I meditate every day or almost every day. That would be at least a beginning. I don't pretend to say that that is a sufficient answer, but it's something. Yeah. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, you can do what one person can do. And you might be surprised at what a difference that makes. So Tonberg's emphasis on personal development and growth, this is a very his chapter on the tarot is a very psychological one. There's a long passage in it that I found really fascinating about the Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah. A long quotation from St. John of the Cross's Dark Knight of the Soul, where, you know, you can think of the tower card as an emblem of the Dark Knight of the Soul, that thunderbolt from outside the light of God that's light but in a weird sense we experience it as darkness because if you see a lightning flash close up it's so brilliant that you're blinded you go blind right? yeah yeah you're thrown in darkness just like Saul of Tarsus right uh, having been struck by a, a thunderbolt and blind for several days and and transformed thereby the idea is that the dark night of the soul is what you encounter precisely when You are, in fact, encountering the light that you've spent your whole life blocking out or avoiding or hiding from, but you can't fucking take it. And in fact, that happens all the time in people who embrace spiritual systems of self-improvement where it's all about anthropotechnics and you're going to... You're going to open all your chakras and you're going to use a special mantra that you paid good money for that's going to (laughs) lead you to higher states of consciousness or whatever. All of those are spiritual practices undertaken in the spirit of building, right? And the problem with them, I can tell you, is that it leads you straight to the motherfucking dark night, straight to the dark night, because you are launching yourself into the midst of a kind of light that you are unprepared to handle and you're going to have to fucking deal with that. That's the thunderbolt from without. I can tell you in my own life, like that thunderbolt from without that dark night did send all of my tower like constructions, all of my technique crashing to the ground. Uh, it was actually a very positive and healthy thing in the end, although it was impossible to see. It, was, it represented a liberation, although it was impossible to see that at the time as it was happening. But all of this is just to say your process of building and destroying or having destroyed for you your own personal tower is something that belongs to the sphere of what we might call spiritual development or religious development, precisely the thing that everybody, I think, you know, educated moderns habitually feel is the most inessential thing, but perhaps it's the most essential thing, precisely because it is the thing, the only thing that can answer the question, what do we do about all these goddamn towers?
0: If you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to weird studies on your favorite podcasting platform you can also follow us on twitter visit the weird studies subreddit and of course support us on patreon music for the podcast is composed and performed by pierre yves martel and the show is made with the assistance of meredith michael thank you for listening